We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. You used to tweet, I haven't seen this in a minute. I love your, I love my blackness and yours. You used to tweet that every day. Um, what do you love about blackness? Yeah, I just love uh, how beautiful, uh, how resilient blackness is. I love that black is interactive. You know, it's like all oh, black, every group of black people is always sort of, uh, sort of interacting with each, with each other in beautiful ways. And, you know, I just like the resilience, the joy of blackness. I like the happiness. I like the creativity, you know, black is culture. Uh, I love so much about blackness. It's been a crazy week. A lot of people talking about creating justice. But what does justice specifically mean? Most people think of it as something abstract. Some people think of it as convicting the man who murdered George Floyd and maybe arresting the three cops who stood there as he did it. But there's something more. Because a George Floyd situation could happen in any city at any time to any black person. There's a standard that's scalable that can exist nationwide to protect all of us because the police work for us and they've been doing their job poorly in many cases. And the issue isn't a few bad apples. It's the system that governs policing. The answer isn't kneeling with cops or hugging cops It's changing the laws and rules and regulations that govern policing. DeRay McKesson from Black Lives Matter and his team have been working for years on how to make lasting fundamental change. And they've been studying the hundred largest police departments in the country, and they've figured out what works and what doesn't. He preaches this. We need to ban chokeholds and strangleholds. We need a clear use of force continuum. We need officers to have a duty to intervene when they see other officers going too far and breaking the law. We need to require de-escalation. We need to require an exhaustion of all alternatives before shooting, including a duty to retreat. We need to ban shooting at moving vehicles. 
we need to require the issuing of a verbal warning before shooting. These tactics are things that we can get implemented that can change the nature of policing in America. I talked to DeRay about those tactics and more. It's DeRay McKesson on Torre Show. Why do you think the George Floyd video struck such a nerve? You know, I think that I think that in so many ways we have been promised something in 2014 that just didn't come to be. I think that there were a lot of people who stood in the street in 2014. I was one of them who thought that something might get better a little bit. But when we look at the data, the police actually have killed more people since the protests, not less. And I think that this was just a reminder of how very little has changed. I think people saw that and were really rightfully frustrated. Uh, Minneapolis, though, is it's no surprise that it started in Minneapolis. Minneapolis has the highest disparity with regard to police violence and race in the country. Black people are 13 times more likely to be killed by a police officer in Minneapolis than anywhere else. Uh, and it is sort of wild. The national average is three times more likely. Minneapolis is 13 times more likely. Uh, so it, in many ways, it makes sense that it would start there. I think the slowness of this particular death and the look on the officer's face, which suggested I can do anything that I want, I think that really had a big impact on a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's a part of it. Uh, but this isn't the first video, right? Like, this is not the... Uh, we've seen when we saw Walter Scott get killed callously. We've seen uh, a million people uh, get killed in ways that are really heinous. So uh, this one was, I think, the duration, just like Mike Brown. It's like when his body lay in the street for four and a half hours, that was a signal. When we saw the officer put his... Uh, his foot on the neck of, of Mr. Floyd, that was a signal holding it there so long. Hmm. Um, when you watch these national and now global protests, what do you think? You have been an extremely experienced protester understanding how to do this sort of protest effectively. What do you think about the way that we are going about it? Yeah, I think that every generation learns its sort of rhythm and cadence of protest. And I think that's what's happening right now with sort of a newer wave of protesters in the street. And it's beautiful to see sort of people find. You know, the beginning is always the hardest. I think about how in the beginning it is people learning what it means to sort of manage a group of a thousand people walking down the street and where not to go and where to go. You know, I think that that is, I think that that is really, uh, that's really hard for people. I think that they learn and grow into it. You know, we were in the street for 400 days. So we, we had a chance and opportunity uh, to sort of figure out all the kinks because we just had so much time. But I think that that's what's happening. And that's beautiful. I know my friends who, who had believed me about the police, but sort of thought I was probably being a little dramatic. And what's cool is that they saw it for themselves this time. Mm. They're like, wow, this really is crazy. Wow, people really dig it to your guys for nothing. It's like, we told you. Uh, and that is sort of, uh, that is actually powerful that there's like an awakening happening all across the country in a way that I hope leads to real results. I mean, I have seen it on video. I have seen it with my own eyes at protests that I was at. Police attacking unarmed, peaceful, non-threatening people. And like the description police riot is accurate in scenes that I've seen. And for so many people, if the police are aggressive, it's inherent, like, well, they must be responding to something, but quite often 
They are responding to nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those things that people will be like, you hate the police. You're being dramatic. It's like, no, literally, literally <laughs> people are just standing outside. And that is, uh, and that's what's happening, you know, like that is it. So people, people weren't sort of being, people weren't waving guns at the police. That's what you would think, but like, that's not what's actually happening. You know what I mean? We've seen the police sort of just be callous. Yeah. Does, you know, we, you and I have talked a lot about the place of violence in these sort of moments. And does, does rioting in some way actually help? Does property violence actually help the cause in some way? So really clear. Um, you know, we want to be really clear about about what what the terms mean, right? So violence is is harm against a person. Uh, property damage is when uh, property has been destroyed. And most of what we're seeing on behalf of the protesters is actually property damage. The violence that we've seen is actually often coming from the police themselves. And you know, that's the thing is that you know, I'm always interested in the way that people frame the violence question because really the violence that caused everything was the violence of the police in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why we were in the street. I haven't seen, you've been out there, you've been out there in really hard moments and like you've seen property damage. It's like, I, can, I don't know uh, what happened. I, I don't know many instances where there was a harm against a person that got perpetrated from the, from the protester standpoint. I find it really frustrating that in this go-round, there's something that I haven't seen in other go rounds, and you know I, I think we've been through this three or four times in the last four years. Um, that there's this desire to kneel with cops, to hold hands with cops, to have these kumbaya moments. And when I am very publicly like, "Fuck that! That is not what we need." Some people get offended about like you are you don't want these interpersonal moments of healing, and I'm like. That's not what this is about. These are professionals doing a job, often poorly, and we need to reform the way they do the job. We don't need to kneel with them and hold hands with them. Yeah, that's true. You know, I I think that that is absolutely true. There seems to be, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's hard for them to imagine that the police actually are just killing people. You know, I think that they want to believe that there has to be something else. And if you believe there has to be something else and you want to appeal to that humanity, you want to appeal to their goodness, but you know, the police have killed pretty consistently for the past 15 years, at least the past 10 years, at least. So I don't know where that impetus comes from. I I do think that, you you know, we want, nobody wants to spend their whole life fighting. So people want the trauma to end. That makes sense to me. But the kneeling, you know, the police actually haven't uh, showed up there into the bargain. It'd be one thing if the numbers had dropped dramatically, if the police just stopped killing people in a really dramatic way. And that just isn't the case. Um, You have been working on coming up with very specific, strategic, targeted, data-proven ways of of reducing police killing, right? And police violence. I just want to talk about some of these specific things that you guys, you and your team have come up with, because a lot of people are out here talking about 
we want justice. And I don't think that what specific justice means, they even know. And you are coming up with like specific things that we can agitate for and demand, um, which quite often comes down to let's let's change the laws and rules and regulations around the way that police do their job. And one of the big things that you talk about is banning chokeholds and strangleholds, which a only about a third of the top hundred police departments ban. Why is that out of all the specific tactics the most important? Yeah, so we think about what is a solution. The solution has to do two things, has to change police behavior and change uh, police outcomes. Now, one of the things that we learned over the past five years is that police use of force policies have a disproportionate impact on how the police use force in communities, right? That it, that it does, that that actually really matters. And there are eight policies that matter more than others. So there are policies around using uh, chokeholds and strangleholds. Only 28 of the 100 largest police departments ban those. When they are banned, there's a 25% reduction in police violence. We think about things like a duty to intervene. If there's a duty to intervene where an officer, if they see wrongdoing and they have to do something about it, that also matters. We think about what does it mean when you have to ex exhaust all other forms uh, of force before you use deadly force, you know, that matters. Restricting police officers or banning police officers from shooting into moving vehicles, those things matter. So these are eight things that when a police department goes from zero of them to all eight of them, it leads to a 70% reduction in a 70% reduction in police violence. And that is one of the biggest effects of anything that we've ever seen in the space. And that's really powerful for us to press on. It's powerful for people to organize around. The data is new that shows that this matters. And that's how we're organizing around it now. You want to institute a use of force continuum. What do you mean by that? So that's just one of the, um, that's just one of the, the eight parts of the policies that matter. A use of force continuum just says that the police department has mapped out what force you can use for what. So can you use a gun if the person is running away? If the person's on the ground being restrained and not actively resisting, what does force look like? It means that the department has actually mapped those things out. And if the department has mapped those things out, they are less likely to use force. Mm -hmm. So you want to say, you have to do everything you can, before, like the gun has to be your absolute last resort. So that's not what that is. That's not what that policy is. But a use of force continuum is saying, has the police department made it really clear uh, what force can be used in what situations? That's what that means. Exhausting all other alternatives before using deadly force speaks to what you just said. Does an officer have to exhaust all other forms of using force before using deadly force? And what's beautiful about these is that they are all clear uh, you know, there's a consensus already of what does it mean to not shoot into a moving vehicle? We don't have to like explain it to death because people understand it. And that is a beautiful thing. I mean, you've made the argument that police departments should perhaps have fewer guns because most of what they're asked to do is not respond to violent crime. So part of the work is to, is to remind people that only 5% of the arrests that happen in the country happen for violent crime. Uh, but we staff police departments as if 50, 60, 70% of arrests happen for violent crime. And we need to shift those responsibilities and those resources somewhere else. So we think about uh, what does it mean uh, that we have an armed person intervening in car crashes, uh, armed persons coming to mental health crises, uh, an armed person is coming to find missing kids. We don't need armed people to deal with the vast majority of these things. We need to shift those responsibilities 
and shift the resources. When you talk about a duty to intervene, that really goes to sort of the culture of policing, which is that we are a unified group or gang and we will be there for each other. And when we're demanding them intervene to each other, um, you're really sort of trying, you're really cutting at the, 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 the fabric of that. I mean, do you think that that is really possible to get them to do? So this actually isn't interested in, um, this isn't interested in the culture change. This is about policy. This is about saying, we are going to say that officers either will behave this way or there'll be consequences. This isn't about a kumbaya moment. It's not, not about how officers feel about each other. This is saying that if you see misconduct, you have an obligation to intervene. And if you don't, you'll be held accountable too. That's what that one's about. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think we see officers saying, you know, if you if you stop me, then I will retaliate against you. And so much of what we have to deal with is the officer's word is taken as gospel. And if there's not somebody shooting video, then we have no idea what actually happened. Yeah. So I don't. You know, that's where I I don't spend much time thinking at all about. Um, I don't hear these complaints from, from police. So I don't, that is not what I hear. Um, but when I think about what these policies do is that they focus on changing the behavior of officers and saying, if the behaviors don't change, uh, then there will be consequences. Where do you stand on the idea of abolition? Do you want to get rid of the police force altogether? Yeah. So like I said before, right, that this is about uh, shrinking the role of the police department and there's a point that we can shrink it so much uh, that we will realize that we don't need uh, this function in this way uh, with these powers. So, you know, I don't know another way to say it besides what I've already said, uh, but we know that things like we don't need a we don't need somebody with a gun to respond to mental health issues. Like we don't need those things. Uh, we can actually shift those resources, shift the responsibilities, uh, and that's what that looks like to think differently about what safety is constituted as. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. 
In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We'll get back to the show in one second, but with everything going on right now, all the craziness, a lot of people are asking, is it even possible to buy life insurance? It may be even more important than ever to buy life insurance. And if you have loved ones, depending on your income, you've got to have that safety net of life insurance. As an insurance marketplace, Policy Genius is in contact with the life insurance companies on their platform every day, keeping track of all the changes in the market so you don't have to, so they can get you covered quickly and for the best price. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies. In one place, it takes just a few minutes. You can compare quotes from top insurers and find the best price. It doesn't just save you a lot of legwork. You could save 50 or more a year using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, they handle the paperwork and the red tape for free. They take care of everything. So if you're somebody looking to buy life insurance right now and to make sure your family is taken care of, go to policygenius.com. They'll find you the best rate. They'll handle the process. No problem. They get you and your family peace of mind. And that'll be one less thing you got to worry about. If you love Toray's show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a Black and progressive perspective. The images flash, right, in our minds. We hold on to trauma on a cellular level. You can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Toray's show. I mean, one thing I think we see in the current moment is police officers fighting back against reform, that they fund them, that this is a critique of them and they don't really want to hear it. And they are pushing back against that and sometimes in very violent ways. Is that, is, is that, does that sound kind of how you see it? What do you mean that the police are pushing? What, do you say that the police are pushing back against people in violent ways? Did I, did I hear that right? Yes, yes, that, that, that this is a nationwide, perhaps global uh, pushback against the way that police do their jobs. And in video after video and account after account, we see them 
behaving violently toward nonviolent people, which suggests to me police fighting against the opportunity of reform and saying, you know, we're the citizens are saying you need to do your job better. And they're saying, shut the fuck up. Yeah, I think that that is, I think that police are definitely um, doing that. I also think that the police is a set of, is a set of people in an institution that's not used to being criticized in a way uh, that they can't just thwart off. I think that the police, uh, policing is a fear-based institution. So every time you sort of challenge it, they say that if you, if you do this, then communities will be unsafe. If you do this, then people won't be able to get the services they need. If you do this, it'll make their lives um, more at risk. That is what the police do. It's fear-based arguments. And we don't want to live in a world where fear is the way that we think about uh, how we operate in it. We want to live in a world that says that there are enough resources to go around, that we can actually experience joy and freedom in a world that's rooted in the data too, that we know that most of what happens in community is actually not violent crime. We know that the safest neighbors are not the neighbors with more police, but they're the neighborhoods with more resources. Those are things that we know and have always known. Um, you know, one thing that, that I mean, you, you were part of a, a leaderful movement, but people outside the movement were saying you were leaderless, but you know, you and some other people were definitely uh, names and faces and voices that that stood out that people could look to. And I feel like in the current moment, we don't have figures who are able to do the same sorts of things. Um, and you know, the way that you were able to function on Twitter was really galvanizing to a lot of people. The way some other people were able to function in uh, a public speaking space was very galvanizing. And without those sorts of people, it, the movement is a little uh, handicapped, I think. What do you think about that? I think that leaders uh, will always rise. I think that there are leaders right now at every level. I think that there's some people, you know, I met the moment. I did something in the moment that was important for that moment. It was special and different. I didn't even know it was different until I looked back and realized uh, that I was the most referenced person in the world when it came to the protests. Uh, but that was a moment. Now that there's now there's a whole sort of way that people think about using Twitter as an activist tool. There's a way that people think about communicating, uh, and I think that we'll continue to see people ebb and flow and how how they lead, and that's actually a beautiful thing. I mean, I know you were exhausted when you were in Ferguson for 400 days, but I think knowing you a little bit, I think you were also exhilarated in that. I find myself exhilarated. Um, and lifted from the pain of sitting at home and watching the video and feeling like nothing's going to happen and being out in the street and shutting streets down has been exhilarating for me. Um, I, was it that way for you that, that it felt that it, it, it is exhausting because you were doing 24-7 work and you were running from the police almost, but was it at the same time this, this sort of exhilarating moment in your life? I, you know, I don't romanticize the protests. It was necessary work that we did. It was work that was really important that we did. It was work where we put our lives on the line every single day. Uh, it was work that felt like purpose to me. Uh, it was hard work. I got dragged out of a police department by my ankles. I've been shot at, you know, like it was, it was work that was important. Um, I don't think about it as exhilarating. I don't romanticize the protests. It was work that we did because we felt like our lives depended on it your lives and i mean were you were you driven by a purpose of like other people need this but you know you were a teacher like my children 
need this? Because, you know, surely it had to be something bigger than you to keep you out there for over a year. Yep. So, I, you know, the, one of the reasons why I went in the street in the first place was because I was a teacher and I taught sixth grade math. And I thought that the least that I could do is actually help my uh, help my kids help the future that my kids deserved. You know, like he, Mike Brown was a teenager and, and my kids deserved to grow up in a world where the police weren't killing uh, kids at the very least. So that was why I went out on day one and day two. And I stayed because I saw the police be wild in ways that I didn't think was possible. I thought that that had passed us. I knew that the police weren't perfect, but I had no clue that the harm that they were inflicting on communities was as egregious as it was. And that changed my life. Are you, so how do you feel now? Like we did that work, you know, in the street, in the, you know, in the, in the data, developing, working, and we're, we've, We've moved the you've moved the ball forward somewhat, right? We've talked about that you don't have to fully explain to people that you know police are being violent uh, in communities, but the same number of people are getting killed each year, right? The same number of people are getting you said about eleven hundred people get killed by police each year. Um, so, how do you feel about that part of it? Yep. So, I, so I think that. This is a moment where we'll see uh, whether we can organize around it or not. This is a moment where we'll see if we have the opportunity to really change the system at the root level, and I think that we do. So we'll see. You know, I feel energized. I feel hopeful. I feel like there's a coalition of people who want to do good, and I'm excited about that. You talk about some of the things that don't work, and I want to just sort of underline some of the things that you've found that aren't really, you know, you talk about uh, the number of black and brown officers is not really that important unless you can get it to 35% of a department, um, which, you know, you talk about body cameras are not really effective at changing behavior, which I think is something that people find really important. Um, what are some of the things that, that, that we don't, that we should not be focusing on? Yeah. So there are five things that don't matter, that, that don't matter. So body cameras are interesting. The data shows that they, uh, don't have an impact on on the behavior of the police. Uh, they do do some effect around the attitudes of the police, but uh, but not an impact on behavior. So, you know, uh, that's not as effective as people thought. The second and third are around training. So there are two types of training, implicit bias training that, that checks an officer's bias and sort of works against it. Uh, and then mental health training, uh, this idea that if we train police for how to deal with mental health situations, they will act differently. Both of those trainings have no impact on police behavior or outcomes. Uh, those trainings have impact on uh, police attitudes. The fourth is around the number of poli- black police officers. Black police officers do matter, but not until you get to about 35%. After 35%, the police department kills less people. So if more. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus 
a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Toray for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. More than 35% of the officers are black. Uh, there are only 12 departments in the country where more than 30% of the officers are black. So this is a solution. It's just not a scalable solution. And then the fifth is community policing. Community policing is the idea that if the community and uh, police work together better, then they will, uh, then the police will actually uh, make different decisions. And that actually isn't the case either. Uh, so these five things don't do, uh, don't do, don't change the outcomes and don't change police behaviors. You've found that unions are a huge part of the problem, right? And we consistently see. I think police unions are really like one of the last unions that are have any power in America. And no matter how egregious the shooting or killing is, uh, the police union will come out and vociferously defend the officer to the last drop. And, you know, and the whole community is like, this is insane. We all saw it on video. And the police chief, the police union head is like, nope, we shouldn't. We shouldn't do anything to this officer. He behaved perfectly. And they seem to be a huge barrier toward getting more effective policing. Yeah, so police unions, we think about police unions sort of like we think about uh, the NRA, not how we think about like a labor organizing space. So police unions just exist to protect officers from accountability. When we look at the data, uh, the studies actually show that the before and after police unions is literally they just kill more people. That's what happens uh, when a police department, when a police unionizes, uh, the, the, the amount of police violence just increases. So uh, we see that and there are clauses all around the country in police contracts and in laws that the unions have fought for that limit the scope of accountability in egregious ways. So in California, there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. That doesn't make sense. In Oregon, there's a law that says an officer can use deadly force if they think you just committed a felony or if they think you're about to commit a felony. That also doesn't make sense. In Chicago, they destroy police officer disciplinary records every five years. That doesn't make sense. So there are clauses like this all across the country. In Minneapolis, there's a clause that says that a community oversight board can exist, but it can never have the power to discipline an officer. That's not really community oversight. So we think about these clauses. They are in most contracts all across the country. We have the only database of police union contracts in the country at checkthepolice.org. And we want people to be able to see them so they can advocate in their own cities. The contract strategy is like a two to five year strategy because the average contract is around for two to three years. So you can only negotiate once the contract is either ending or has ended, uh, which makes that strategy a little bit different. But that's why we focus on the policy so much. And the 8can'twait.org campaign is about things that we can do today that will have an impact today that mayors can change today. What is the website that you want people to go to to get more information about these eight that we've been talking about? 8can'twait.org. So the number 8can'twait.org. So part of your rise and your continued genius has been being 
awesome on Twitter. What is it? I mean, you're a great writer, even like long form with your book, but all just short form. What is the what is the key to being great on Twitter? I don't have any secrets. You know, I really just use Twitter's one of the only platforms that I just get. Like it makes sense to me. I think about it as like a friend that I'm talking to. Uh, so I don't really think about it. I have to think much harder about like when to post Instagram. Like that stuff doesn't just come naturally to me. But Twitter, it just like I post when I want to. I like it just like the the tightness, the constraints of how many characters to use actually helps me a lot, helps me be really focused. But I don't really have tips. I'd say like, you know, authenticity matters on on Twitter. Uh, you know, the way the way that people sort of show up as their whole selves in the platform is actually really powerful. So uh, so those things, um, that's how I think about it. But I don't really know. So you, you, I mean, there's an almost endless stream of new videos coming out you know, one on top of the other. I mean, do you do you watch all the videos or are you sort of stepping away from that for your own mental health? So I watch some of the videos. I don't need to, you know, see it to believe that the person should be alive. Uh, often when I watch, I'm trying to figure out a piece of evidence or I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it if I'm going to translate it for the news or something like that. Uh, but that's it, you know? I mean, it seems to me that a lot of people are in a lot of pain carrying this baggage around in their short-term memory. There's at least 20 of these snuff films that I could call up in my short-term memory right now at any second. And I'm sure that, you know, other people have, you know, 10, 20, 30 in their short-term memory. And what kind of trauma is that doing to us? Yeah, you know, I think that it leads to both frustration and I also think it leads to, um, I think it leads to a little despair in people. But I think that's why people are out in the street right now, because they know that this doesn't have to be this way uh, and that we can actually do something to make it different. So I'm excited about that. I'm hopeful about that. Uh, and I believe that this is the beginning uh, of a set of change that we'll see in community for a long time. I mean, you when you talk about change, you are very tactical and sometimes I say things to you and you're like that's not what freedom looks like or you're like that that's not scalable and it's almost like you look at it as like a business proposition like how can we get something that will produce justice consistently tangibly for a large number of people um I just wonder where that perspective on it all comes from yeah, I think that, you know, I just grew up as an organizer as a kid and, and worked around so many adults who were very pragmatic and focused. So we were always trying to figure out what does it mean to be solution oriented, especially when you grow up poor or grow up in uh, in a poor city. You know, I think that uh, it's a luxury to, to sort of expend a lot of energy uh, in reaction. I think that we're always trying to figure out how to get out for, for how to get out of these out of these things. So, you know, I, I believe that we can win. That's like a core belief of mine. I'm an optimist, but I'm not a Pollyanna. Uh, and I know that hope is work. Hope isn't magic, right? That hope is not something that we just like dream about. Hope is something we plan for and that we need. I mean, I know that you used to tweet. I haven't seen this in a minute. I love your, I love my blackness and yours. You used to tweet that every day. Um, what do you love about blackness? 
Yeah, I just love uh, how how beautiful, uh, how resilient Blackness is. I love that Black is interactive. You know, it's like all oh, Black, every group of Black people is always sort of uh, sort of interacting with each, with each other in beautiful ways. And, you know, I just like the resilience, the joy of Blackness. I like the happiness. I like the creativity. You know, Black is culture. Uh, I love so much about Blackness. Thanks so much to DeRay for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, and Gerville Calais. Join us over at patreon.com slash Show to get an extra episode every Friday only for Patreon subscribers. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.